And it was really interesting, Chase, because we took some people who on paper had no athletic background, but we put them on a training plan and really it was transformational for individuals. There's something amazing about making the summit of a mountain. Like you can't get there except by putting one foot in front of the other. Like it's you, you did it. And it doesn't matter whether it took you six hours or eight hours or 10 hours, you know, you made the summit, you put in the effort, you felt the pain, you've been on that mountain, it could be six days or eight days or 10 days. And uh, it was really good for people. It was super motivational. Yeah. And some of those employees have continued this passion to this day and keep climbing. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. In this podcast, I'll be unraveling the stories of high performers across sports, business, and wellness. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and develop your path and journey. Today's guest is Tony Van Marken. Tony has had a successful career as an award-winning high-tech entrepreneur, venture capitalist, management consultant, and independent investor, having worked in South Africa, the United Kingdom, Canada, and France. Currently, he is managing partner and co-founder of First Descent Ventures, a venture capital firm based in Toronto, Canada, focused on investing in emerging technology companies. Tony is also an accomplished endurance athlete, including marathons, ultramarathons, and mountain bike stage races and a veteran of over 35 high-altitude mountaineering expeditions with over 65 summits. He summited Everest in 2005 to complete his quest to climb the world's original seven summits, the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents, becoming the first South African to do so. Blending his success as a businessman, endurance athlete, and mountaineer, Tony has acted as a motivational speaker for corporations and international conferences around the world. In this interview, we get into how Tony has had to adjust first ascent ventures and his mountaineering passion due to the pandemic, what it was like living in South Africa during apartheid, his entrepreneurial journey, climbing the seven summits, and much more. And so, without further ado, my interview with Tony Van Marken. Tony, thanks for coming to the show. I really appreciate it. Hey, Chase, it's uh, great to be here. Thank you. So what's the whole COVID-19 situation like where you are in Canada right now? Well, right now in Toronto, Ontario, we have, uh, we have pretty much a full lockdown. Um, so everyone's working remotely. Um, you may have read that uh, travel has been canceled outbound from Canada to the Caribbean, Central and South America. Everyone had to basically return by February the 14th. And so the government's taking it super seriously. And, um, you know, it's like that for everyone. It's been a year. I think it's going to continue for a while, but um, I'd hate to say we're getting used to it, but it has uh, become, you know, just the way, to, way, way it is. Yeah. Yeah. And how, how has this affected, or how has this adjustment been like for you? And like, how's it affected things for both um, First Ascent, your company, as well as your mountaineering, endurance, like passion and adventures? Yeah, on the business front, you know, I manage a venture capital firm, First Ascent Ventures, and we run a portfolio of companies. 
fortunately, the way we, you know, have built and managed the business is fully cloud-based. So we can all work from any location remotely. And all of our companies are B2B enterprise software companies that also are working in the cloud. So everything has become completely remote. Obviously, we spend a lot of time on Zoom, whether it be board meetings or doing due diligence or interviewing entrepreneurs or pitching to investors. And that's now become completely accepted practice uh, in, in the technology sector. So, you know, I'd say overall, we are fortunate that we can still do our jobs and, and continue. On the adventure front, I'm sad to say I had two expeditions that I've had to cancel last year. I had a trip to Mexico to climb three volcanoes and I was taking oh, wow. a group. To, we were taking a group to Everest Base Camp on behalf of the Juniper Fund in October of last year. And we had to reschedule that to October of 2021. So assuming that Nepal opens back up and normalizes, we, we're hoping we can go in the second half of the year. Huh. Wow. Were you able to get any, I guess, expeditions done in 2020? No, very sadly. Wow. And, you know, I've always, yeah. I've always prided myself on climbing a mountain every year. And so 2020 will not go down in the annals of history as a good year for mountaineering. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. How are you, I guess, Phil, or I guess keep, keep saying <laughs> when you're just kind of working in Zoom calls and you know, uh, I've built a really good gym in my basement and I've got an indoor bike, indoor rowing machine. Uh, so training indoors during the winter and then in the summer, you know, I managed to do quite a bit of biking, but I have to be honest, right. it, it's hard to stay super motivated without a goal in front of you. So it hasn't been the best 12 months of training. Um, but you know, that sounds like a bit of a privileged statement to make, you know, at the end of the day, fit and healthy um, and just, just trying to take care of the health, um, staying mobile, staying active as much as you can. I think for everyone is a challenge, but you have to do something particularly, I think, because we just walk less, right? We're not walking to work. We're not walking around a city. We're not moving. And I think that has long-term effects as well for everyone. So, like everyone else, I, I, I've made it part of my lifestyle to train every single day of my life. So at some point, I find a way to do something. It could be yoga. It could be an indoor bike ride. It, it could be rowing. It could be gym. But it'll be something. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> it's very important. And going back to how you've had to adjust with First Ascent, um, I'm pretty curious because, uh, as you know, I used to work in private equity and like how you're conducting all your meetings with these potential portfolio companies and investments and not being able to actually meet these entrepreneurs and founders face to face. Like what, what has that experience been like? So it's been quite interesting. So I'd, I'd break that down into three different buckets. The one is managing the existing portfolio. The second is doing brand new deals. And the third is when you're trying to manage an exit. So managing the existing portfolio, I'd say from the middle of March, when we were in the middle of the blast radius of the pandemic, you know, there was a massive adjustment. And I'd say it took, you know, about a month, month or so till we all made the move to remote work and Zoom meetings. And, and there were some unintended benefits of that. You know, for example, having a board meeting virtually where 
quite often I was traveling to another city uh, to get to a board meeting. You know, you lose a lot of productivity getting to the airport, traveling, coming back, et cetera. Now I found my day was super productive, you know, because meetings happen on time and you've got no, you've got zero downtime. And we had other benefits in our portfolio where, although initially there was a slowdown in sales, eventually there was an uptick in productivity because people are available all the time. So on the portfolio front, I think it worked out pretty well. Um, in terms of doing brand new investments, I find that personally very challenging to make an investment yeah. in a new company without going to see them and meeting people face to face. And we have not made a new investment um, during the pandemic. And, but that is also partially due to the fact that we're busy closing a second fund. Um, so okay. we've been fundraising and, and that equally for the when you're fundraising, when I'm on the other side of the table, pitching to limited partners, same challenge, right? They would like to meet in person. It was very difficult fundraising during 2020. Mm -hmm. Things are now much better in 2021. Um, the other category is managing an exit. So we sold one company uh, during the pandemic to a publicly traded company. And needless to say, you know, running an M&A process over Zoom is complicated and it's not easy. And we were fortunate that the management team managed to meet the buyer just before the pandemic and had face-to-face -face meetings. And eventually we concluded the deal, but I think definitely that was challenging, but it's also now becoming accepted practice, you know, so you've seen a lot of M&A activity, obviously, right. um, and everyone has found a way to cope with that. But is it, is it easy? I wouldn't say it's, it's, uh, I prefer, I'm a bit old school and I like face-to-face -face meetings. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And what's first a sense investment criteria? Like what are some of the things you're looking for in the companies that you invest in? So our focus is primary primarily on enterprise SaaS companies. So for the listeners who are not familiar with SaaS, it's software as a service. So we're looking at companies selling into say the fortune 500 with recurring revenue streams. We typically invest from the series a round upwards. Uh, our focus is Canada and the US, and we're looking for companies with a minimum of 2 million to 5 million of annual recurring revenue. We look in high ACV, meaning annual contract values, um, very sticky customers, you know, high retention and very low churn, and committed and resilient management teams, you know, who, who understand the journey they're going on the challenges that will be coming to them and, and how, how hard it is to build a technology company, you know, so, and, and related to that, we're looking for companies who are trying to disrupt the status quo to some extent. So they're trying to replace existing legacy software vendors. They're trying to leverage AI or machine learning or blockchain or could be 5g. And so um, that's really our focus. Awesome. Is there one company in particular in your portfolio that um, you're really excited about? So we got a number, but I'll pick out one company that's been particularly interesting. Um, and it's called Dialogue and it's in the telehealth space. And telehealth, as you may know, got a huge tailwind from COVID. Yeah. And so, you know, during the second quarter of 2020, when a lot of companies were struggling or frozen, you know, 
this company hired over 500 people. And it's wow. the telehealth leader in the Canadian market. It's done tremendously well, uh, incredible growth. And, and for me personally, having now used online virtual healthcare, you know, if you think of the alternative, you go to the doctor's office, you queue up or you, you wait in the waiting room. Typically the doctor's not on time. You wait 45 minutes, you have your appointment, he gives you a prescription, you go home. That could be half a day. You know, now you go online, your appointment happens exactly on time. Your prescription is delivered to your nearest pharmacy and you can have your medication delivered to your home. I mean, this is a radical improvement in this process. So it's a company we are super excited about their, their future. Yeah. Yeah. It expedites the, the process tremendously for sure. And shifting gears here now, or I guess, um, like, is there any, so is the next big adventure you have planned, is that the, the rescheduled one, the Everest Base Camp, since that you can do that last year? So that's probably a pretty kind of straightforward challenge because we're really taking a group on behalf of a charity to base camp. So I'm excited to do it mainly because my wife's coming along. Uh, she's never been to Nepal, so that'll be cool. Um, but on, on the sort of new challenge side, you know, I'd, I'd love to do another 8,000 meter peak, but it's difficult finding the time. But the other challenge is um, climbing the seven volcanic summits. Okay. Um, and so there's some very interesting mountains in that group. Uh, one is Ojos de Salado in, in Chile, which I was trying to get to, uh, but I haven't been able to pull it off. Um, and, and so there's, there's some interesting trips I'd like to do. I also want to do this trilogy of volcanoes in Mexico. Um, I love climbing in South America, but if I could get to Pakistan at some point to go do one of the 8,000 meter peaks, they're not K2 or broad peak, but something like G1 or G2, that would be great. I'd love to do that. Not sure if that'll happen this year, probably a 2022 plan. Um, right. But still dream. I'm always dreaming of the next expedition, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And how, how long does, um, like from end to end, does a 8,000 meter plus hike take? Like from when you get there to when you, I guess, leave? It's four to six weeks. You know, you really okay. got to think of four to six weeks. You, you can try and do it in four weeks. It really de depends on acclimatization and good weather. You typically plan for six, hope to do it in a bit less. So... Yeah, that's the time frame. So as you can imagine, to take four weeks off from work is um, yeah. not so easy. Um, so I have to find really a period in the summer where I could do that and things are a bit calmer in the fund. Right. Yeah, so yeah. you don't have to just shoot off emails 4,000 meters in the air, <laughs> if that's even you know, possible. For, fortunately, fortunately, now you can be anywhere in the world, whether you're on a, with a sat phone and you've got email, right? So yeah you you can sort of manage your workload if you're clever but it's not not so easy yeah and not ideal <laughs> no yeah awesome so let's bring this back to the to the beginning now um like what did you grow up in canada or um where did you grow up in so chase no i was born in amsterdam in holland uh, my father was dutch my mother was english and at the age of four years old, we moved to Johannesburg in South Africa. And so really grew up there, finished school and university there. 
And, um, you know, from South Africa, I moved to London in 1993. I lived in, the, in London for a year. I moved to Canada in 94. Lived in Canada for seven years. Then I moved from Canada to France. Wow. Lived there for three years. Went back to South Africa for 10 years and then came back to Canada in 2014. So that's a very quick <laughs> summary. And there's yeah. a story around all of that, of course. Right. Right. And what was there any, I guess, consistent driver as to why you're moving around so much? Like, was it transferring schools or was it work related? So it was really, so, so when I left South Africa for the first time, it was really, I wanted to work in Europe. Um, I'd been working for Accenture for five years and I wanted to just go live in a different country. So it was really opportunity. And I, I resigned from my job and I went traveling for three months with my wife and then started work again. And then getting to Canada, opportunity knocked where I had an opportunity to join Architel as CEO. Um, and so that got me to Canada and, and nothing was really planned, Chase. It was just like one door would open, another one would close and, you know, I would just go through it and, and choose a new destination. I, I guess, what did impact me is my parents were, uh, they were not, uh, I'd say, huge sports people. They, they played tennis, but they weren't really out, outdoorsy, but they were great travelers and explorers. And my mother and father lived in Indonesia, um, Nigeria, um, Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. Okay. Um, so, so, so in the 60s, they were living in some places where a lot of people probably would not choose to go. And we always did interesting holidays, you know, into Africa, into some very remote places while we were kids. So they definitely instilled a love of travel and exploration in me and my brother. Interesting. Yeah. I was going to ask kind of where this passion around mountaineering to all these exotic places comes from. But yeah, that's interesting. And would you say uh, that you're like a natural or born entrepreneur? Like, were you the kid growing up who always had some sort of a little hot side hustle or journal of business ideas that you would write in? I wouldn't say that, but I was, every time I had an opportunity to sell something, I would excel. So for example, I remember at school, we had this, you had to go sell raffle tickets, you know, to, to raise money for something or, 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 or other. And I would always find a way to sell the most. And in my sort of summer jobs, I always found I could outsell everyone, you know, and, and it's probably a skill I've had for most of my career. I've been good at selling and um, I sort of didn't start any businesses or have a paper route or a gardening service or any of those stories. I was right. just good at getting people to buy something and, and doing it at scale. I could, mm -hmm. I could really do that. Yeah. Yeah. What did your, what did your parents do for work? So my father and mother were both in the, in the travel business. And um, in fact, my father worked for an airline, which you probably haven't heard of. It was called UTA French Airlines. It was acquired by Air France um, decades ago. And he opened an office for them in Rhodesia and he worked for them in Nigeria and South Africa. And so he tended to get moved around the world in his, in his business life and my mother worked as a travel agent in a travel agency and um you know so this travel theme kind of 
was always there and and they would always yeah. say always take us on an adventure oh, are we going to zambia or are we going to go to swaziland or are we going to go to zimbabwe on holiday and you know we did we did lots of interesting things in our school holidays as kids because they were particularly interested in doing that and so that was sort of the, the life we led you know as, as we were children yeah and how do you think those I guess, untraditional vacations as a kid has had maybe changed your perspective on different cultures and the world or in life, et cetera. You know, that's a great question. So I think that it's important to, if you can live in different countries and experience different cultures and different languages, you know, growing up in Holland, I was learning Dutch. My Dutch is not very good now. Um, South Africa, you know, I learned Afrikaans and I learned Zulu and Kosa, which were two African languages. Again, not fluent, but studied them at school and university. Um, obviously, you know, South Africa is a very diverse society, you know, 20 official languages. So that was a great experience. But equally, you know, living in France or England or Canada, you just experience different points of view. And I think it's really helpful you know my kids as well have 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 lived in multiple countries they've traveled traveled with me and my wife extensively they've been on mountaineering adventures with us and i think all of these experiences shape you you know if you're traveling in nepal or you're in poor countries you see things that definitely shape your point of view and so right. i found that to be very helpful yeah yeah for sure and on a similar note uh I looked at your LinkedIn profile. Were you in South Africa during the like the last several years of apartheid? Do I have that right? Yeah, I was. I was there, and um, I mean, I left in 1993, and Nelson Mandela came to power in 1994, and it was it was an amazing time leading up to that. You know, there was incredible excitement as South Africa made this you know, non-violent transition to democracy, which is one of, I think, the only African country who actually succeeded in doing that. And, you know, things were really transformed, you know. Um, it, it was a time of hope and enthusiasm and optimism. And, you know, the sort of period during which Nelson Mandela was, was president was really amazing to see the country grow and be welcomed back onto the world stage. And, particularly in the sporting arena as well, you know, and I guess one of the highlights was in 1995 when South Africa won the Rugby World Cup, you know, and you saw Nelson Mandela and the captain of South Africa, you know, holding the trophy. And so they were wonderful times, you know. Um, they talk about South Africa as the rainbow nation and, um, you know, it, 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 was, it was incredible to see. Um, I mean, things are quite tough there now. It's been very tough during COVID. The economy is struggling. So you know, like a lot of other countries, you know, big economic challenges to overcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was it, I know the last, or at least from what I've read, the last several years, there was some, a bit of unrest. Was it, is that maybe more ex exaggerated than what it really was or, um, and like, how did that impact you when you were there? Well, yeah, you know, well, I remember being at university in the in the 1980s you know we i was at a university called the university of cape town which was a very liberal university and so we would 
you know, frequently uh, protest against the government and, and you'd have these student protests and then the police would arrive, the riot police, you know, tear gas the crowd and wow. pick out students to, be, to beat up and things like that. So, you know, I grew up during those times. Um, and um, I also, in the early 1980s, South Africa had conscription. So everyone had to do two years of national service, but I was a Dutch citizen. And so I didn't have to go. And then they passed a law and then they basically said, if you're living in South Africa and you've been here more than five years, you are by default naturalized and you are eligible for conscription. So, you know, a month later I got my call up papers and I was still in university at the time. And so when I finished university, I had to go do two years of military service. So similar model to the Israelis, you know, and so right. I did two years in the military, but fortunately um, after I finished basic training and, and an officer's training course, because I had a degree in computer science, I was posted to, to work in a software group, which was effectively a civilian company that had the contract for developing all the software for the South African government. So I worked in a software laboratory designing software with, some pretty amazing people. And um, so I didn't, you know, get to do anything else more exciting than that. But certainly it was, uh, it was challenging times, you know, as the country went through this sort of process of, of trying to get everything resolved and get the politicians to come to an agreement with the, with the, with the ANC, which they eventually did, thank goodness. And, and it all worked out. Hmm. Wow. Wow, that's fascinating. And so you mentioned you studied uh, computer science. W what did you think that you wanted to do for a career while you're while you're studying computer science? Well, the lead up to that was quite interesting. You know, when I was at school, um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I did very well in in uh, in science and mathematics. And initially, I was going to be a chemical engineer. And I remember sitting with the guidance counselor at the university, who explained to me what a chemical engineer would do professionally and, and the idea of being in a lab with a white coat doing some sort of experiments didn't appeal to me. And then I always remember she said, but we've got this great new course called computer science. And this is not, so Chase, this is 1982, right? <laughs> so this is early. And they had a mainframe at the university. And so I said, well, that sounds really interesting. How long does the course take? And she said, well, it's three years and you become a, you know, and you qualify. So I said, okay, let's do that. And so purely by chance, I signed up for this degree. And it was interesting because in 1982, we were, you couldn't write code into a computer. You did it on a punch card. You would punch it into a card, each card for each line of code, and then go through a card reader and get processed by a mainframe and out would, and you would compile your code. I mean, this is young people can't conceive of how things used to work. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and this was an ICL um, mainframe, which most people have never heard of ICL, but it used to be, you know, a, a significant producer of mainframes out of the United Kingdom. And so in my second year, I got hold of an Apple, a Lisa computer that was like revolutionary and over a dial-up modem, I could dial into the mainframe from home and I could do coding, you know? So anyway, I finished 
that degree in 1984, I was not sure where it would lead to, but you know, I got, got signed up as a computer programmer to work for an insurance company, but worked at this insurance company for six months coding. So, you know, traditional waterfall software development life cycle, you'd get a specification, go through design, code, build, test, etc. very traditional and really loved it. I mean, I loved computer programming and then, and then I got conscripted, got conscripted into the army. And then my second year, I was again writing software, um, okay. this time on IBM mainframe. So anyway, it was, it was, that's where I started. Um, sort of, I guess my connection with, with technology and software. Yeah. Yeah. And what, like, what would you be coding for? Like some of these, some of these projects like today, like I feel like everything that you'd be coding for has some connection to the internet in, in some form or fashion. Like, so what, what would you be, I guess, coding or programming back then? Oh, so, you know, in, in the, in the company I worked for, they were, we were building, you know, missile guidance systems, um, but as well as payroll systems, um, okay. financial systems, you know, anything to run the government or, um, the four arms of the defense department, whatever software they needed to make things go, we were running it. And, but that was all on centralized, mainly centralized mainframes for sort of back office systems. Um, so it was, you know, traditional IBM um, architecture. Interesting. And looking back now, how important do you think that job um, being a software programmer was for you in kind of laying the foundation for this whole entrepreneurial venture capital career that you've since embarked on within technology? I think it was pretty fundamental because, you know, after, after those first two jobs, I was recruited by Accenture and I spent six years with them working on very large systems integration projects in South Africa and the UK. I ended up working at telecommunications group. So these were projects with hundreds of people on them designing custom software from scratch. So I really learned, you know, the, the art of designing computer software and massive systems and attention to detail and planning and managing complexity and dealing with people. And, you know, I think at some point in your career, working somewhere where you sort of build your professional skill set is very important, you know, and Accenture certainly they drilled into you this, this need to deliver according to customer expectations. Everything has to work. It has to be at an outstanding level of quality. And, you know, when I went on my entrepreneurial journey, running my first software company, you know, I understood that, you know, if you don't make the customer happy, you don't get paid and you don't get paid. You do not have a business. Um, but at least I knew managing uh, a software organization, I understood the job of the engineering group. You know, I, I, as you go up the food chain, you lose touch with all the technical nuances, but I could, I understood the job of every single person in my R and D group because I'd, I'd been there myself. Right. Right. And so, so where does the pivot come for you to go into entrepreneurship and, and, and like, and why does, did you make that pivot? So here's what happened. I was sitting in London working in the telecom group of Accenture and we were working on this project 
And we found this company in Canada called Architel, which had designed a piece of software known as an operational support system. And we subcontracted them to help us deliver for this client. And this was a small little company with about 10 people, less than a million dollars in revenue. And, but they built some revolutionary software. And I actually went to my, my boss at the time and I said, I think you should buy this company. This hmm. is really interesting. And, you know, the response was, you know, you know, we, we charge our clients to build custom software. Uh, sometimes we use package software, but we don't go and buy, you know, third party software vendors. Well, anyway, six months later, I was in Canada meeting with the venture capital firm who were the controlling shareholder of this company. And I gave them a recommendation on how to improve the company and make it more efficient because they were pretty disorganized. To cut a long story short, the managing partner said, hey, Tony, why don't you join us and come and manage this company and fix it? And I decided fairly quickly to do that. I moved to Canada, became the CEO, um, learned what stock options are, um, got a good option package, and you know, built up that company over five years. But uh, what, what was really interesting about the journey was in uh, the mid-90s, the U.S. telecommunications market was being deregulated. So you had these big regional bell operating companies, and then due to deregulation, you had what we call the CLECs, uh, which were competitive local exchange carriers. And this company, Architel, was selling operational support systems and suddenly our market became massive. And within 18 months of joining the company, I took it public on, uh, on the Toronto Stock Exchange in 1996. Um, and then we took it public on NASDAQ two years later and um, with a market cap of $400 million and it became a huge success story. Um, so it was, a, it was an incredible ride and something I'm very grateful for. That's awesome. What was your, what was your reaction when the managing partner of the, the VC firm um, asked you to, to run this company? Like how, how, did, how did you feel in that moment? At that moment, I, I actually said to him, his name was Ben Webster. I said, Ben, look, um, you know, I work at Accenture. I'm going to become a partner at Accenture. You know, I'm on this career track. And he kind of looked at me, he says, yeah, that's, you're not going to make any money. It's not going to really work out for you. So, so think long and hard about my offer and let me know. And I said, okay, I'm going to go back to, to London. I'll talk to my wife and I'll let you know. And um, went back and we decided, hey, this is an adventure. We're going to go move to Toronto and let's see what happens. And I'd been at Accenture six years. And, and you know, a lot of my friends said to me, you're crazy. <laughs> you know, you're going to take this huge risk on a small startup why would you do that? And the company was 10 years old. You know, I should point out it had been founded in 1984 by two founders, two brilliant guys who, who, who I really admired, but the company had sort of just got to about a million in revenue and was really struggling. So the VC, like all VCs do said, let me do something different and bring in some talent, you know? So it was sort of fortuitous that we met. Um, I had spent a lot of time researching the software and I'd actually managed to get it working in a telco in the UK. So I had a great appreciation for the potential. And so it was really a combination of timing, luck, and, and a couple of things. But Chase, I mean, a completely unplanned event, like you say, a pivot to something that you could not have foreseen. Huh. 
And and what was because Accenture? I guess for people who don't know, is this huge global, well-known brand name consulting firm. What was it like going from that to running? I think you said a ten-person um, startup company at the time. It was so difficult because, you know, the beauty of being inside an Accenture, you've got these giant project teams. You can you can just get stuff done by throwing people at the problem, and suddenly, I was doing it all myself. You know, so we had an engineering team. We had one, one person in finance. Um, the one founder was selling and, and me. And, um, you know, and I increased that headcount from to 500 people over five years and operating in over 20 countries around the world. And we ended up signing, you know, 10 of the 20 largest telcos in the world you know, from, you know, like British Telecom and nine US West. But it it was difficult. I mean, it was, it was, uh, you know, it was 80 hours a week, nonstop, seven days a week. But I absolutely loved what I was doing. I had no distractions. You know, I was totally focused on this endeavor. And I think there's a time in your life where you feel like that. And uh, my kids were born during this entrepreneurial endeavor, but they were small. And fortunately my wife managed everything at home and I could just focus on the business. Hmm. How old were you at the time um, when you first started? So it was 1994. So I just turned 30 years old. Okay. And at 31, I found myself being, you know, the CEO of a public company, which is a pretty young age to be running a publicly traded company. (laughs) Yeah, interesting. Was there was there any resentment from, or did you know of any resentment from employees who are maybe much older than you, who are working under you? So now this thirty year old running this, I don't know, public company or whatever. So you know, I mean, I had two founders who were both in their mid forties. You know, I remember okay. thinking, "Well, those guys are really old." Um, <laughs> you know, but <clears throat> I don't think like that anymore, of course. But but they were terrific. You know, the one founder left the business. Uh, the other one became my partner. And, and we both realized that we brought different skills to the table. And, you know, I brought a good understanding of what it took to, you know, s- contract with a large global telco to manage the delivery teams to get things done. And he was really good at, at finding superb opportunities and together we were a fantastic team at closing deals. And, and obviously uh, I brought in a team, you know, we built a really good management team over time. And so we, we had a good combination of sort of technology industry and delivery expertise along the, amongst the team. Um, and, and we were doing something at the time um, that was pretty extraordinary. And, and, and what's interesting about this particular company Nortel Networks bought it for $400 million in 2000. And then Nortel collapsed and the company was sold on a couple of times. And, it, and it's now sitting inside Oracle's uh, telco stack and continues to do unbelievably well. And the one lesson I learned here is um, I underestimated that if you build a really solid platform and it's installed in, in a, a large fortune 500 company and it's working and it's critical 
to daily operations, it's going to be there for 20 years. And the revenue stream on 20 years is significant. In hindsight, we sold that business too early, you know. Interesting. And um, you took it public on the, was it NASDAQ in 98? Is that what you said? Is that right? Yeah. So we, so we listed on the T- Toronto Stock Exchange in 96. And then we did, a cro- we did a cross-border listing in 98, which we actually did through an acquisition. So we okay. acquired a NASDAQ listing in 98. Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, obviously, as you know, the, the dot-com bubble comes pretty soon after that. How did, how did that affect um, Ar- Architel and I guess more broadly your career, just kind of generally? Yeah, so, so you know, I, we sold the business and I, I exited the business. And so I actually uh, left the business and in 2001, uh, in 2000, 2001, I teamed up with a partner to do a internet venture capital fund. <laughs> now, this is another interesting story of success and failure because we raised 150 million Canadian dollars at the time. Uh, that was the good news. Um, we then made 18 investments in a lot of internet companies. And then 2001, 2002, the world falls apart. And we spent years um, managing and triaging that portfolio. So that was, that was a really tough learning experience. And, <clears throat> you know, looking at the telco experience, you know, there was a huge boom in the telecom industry in the, in the late 90s. And then that tailed off later on. You know, there was too much fiber built. There was too much capacity out there. I mean, it's kind of interesting okay. looking back because now all that capacity has been used up, but there was, a, um, there was a sort of a boom and a bust and Nortel most famously was one of the colossal failures in the Canadian market. You know, here, here you've got a company with 35 billion in revenue that does not exist anymore. So wow. um, lots of lessons learned certainly along the way. Yeah, and, uh, and on that note, what are some of the biggest takeaways or lessons learned about building a company, scaling a company, et cetera, um, that you gained from, from running Architel? You know, a couple of things. Um, don't compromise on, on the team, like get the best people you can get people who, you know, know, know your strengths and weaknesses and make sure that where you have weaknesses, you hire the best possible people you can pay fanatical attention to detail and, you know, and, and if you don't make sure you have people who in their respective areas of responsibility do that because building mission critical complex software requires exceptional, you know, detail, attention to detail, quality, delivery, et cetera, make decision, decision making a competitive weapon, you know, and by that, I mean, there's a tendency in a lot of companies to delay tough decisions and make decisions by committee. And I think at times, you know, when you're young, you're trying to get consensus to get things done. And sometimes we took too long to get there. And, you know, when I look back, if we could, if we could have speeded up some of the key decisions in terms of maybe markets to go after or a potential acquisition, et cetera, you know, we could have, we could have built a bigger company. So, Plan for things going wrong. You know, this is also a lesson from climbing where, you know, when you're doing an expedition, you're always thinking about all the things that will go wrong in the expedition, whether it be poor weather, 
could be poor health, you know, whatever it might be, equipment failure. But people tend to be optimistic by nature in building a business. As you know, Chase, having been in private equity, when people put that forecast in front of you, it's always up and to the right. <laughs> but, yeah. we know, but we know that it's not a linear equation. It goes, it goes up and down the whole way. Mm-hmm. And you actually have to be prepared for setback and failure and, and, and accept that that's going to be par for the course. And if it's not, that's a bonus. But typically, it does happen. So you need to sort of, I found, be more resilient to accept you know, the, the ups and downs of the journey. And, and that's, I coach entrepreneurs to say, you know, it's, it's okay to, to plan building your business like that. But to think that this is a straight line up and to the right, I have never seen a business just do that without some serious challenges along the way. Yeah. Yeah. And um, on the, uh, the decision-making part of that, have you since then, maybe like a created some sort of a framework in terms of how you now handle big decisions, whether it was in later companies that you were part of or now with first ascent, like you have a specific framework in terms of how you handle those big decisions. It's, it's more of a, a philosophy around it as opposed to necessarily a framework. And so <clears throat> for example, the second company I ran was called Vox telecom, which was a telecommunications company in South Africa. And it was a, I'd say a feisty up and comer taking on the sort of big fixed line operator and the big mobile operators. But what we did is we, we did 12 acquisitions and we bought a number of companies. And in doing that, we had an approach where we made decisions really quickly. And, you know, we grew the company from, if I translate it back to dollars from about $10 $10 million in revenue to about $250 million in revenue through organic growth and acquisition. And we basically outgrew a number of our equivalent competitors in the market simply by being nimble and moving fast. So if that is, you know, identify your target, do your diligence, convene a quick board meeting, make decisions, do the deal, close the deal, and then keep going, you know? Um, so, I certainly encourage people to think of the velocity around decision-making, you know, as opposed to, okay, let's put this on the agenda for next week's management meeting. And it's, you know, and, and things get deferred. Let's try and make a decision earlier. And if you think about the mountaineering metaphor, you know, if you're on Everest and you're at camp four and you get a weather report, you make a call very quickly. Am I going up? Am I staying? Or am I descending? You know? And so, there's that focus on timely decision-making. And I think quite often companies lose that, and particularly big companies really lose that ability to make quick decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And so um, let's shift gears here now and get into um, your, your mountaineering career a bit. Why, why did you decide to embark on your quest to, cl- to climb the original seven summits? And when did that idea come about? So I'll tell you what happens. So, um, after Arcatel was acquired and the internet bubble burst, it was about 2001, I had some time on my hands and I thought I need to learn something new. And I, I saw this advertisement for a winter mountaineering course in Scotland in the Scottish Alps. And so I went off to Scotland in the middle of winter to do this seven day course with a Scottish guide. It was the most horrific weather 
with snow, ice, and sleet. I'm not sure if you've been to Scotland, Chase, but the weather's never good there. <laughs> and, you know, I was wearing crampons for the first time and I was taught how to use an ice axe and how to self-arrest. And every day we got beaten up by the weather. And on the very last day, you take everything you've learned and then you go and do a climb with a guide on, on a particular peak. And we set off and it turned into this beautiful day in Scotland and the sun was shining and we made the summit and it was like, I'm sitting on the summit thinking, this is just, this is, this is amazing. This is something I've never experienced. And I had a dream to climb Kilimanjaro. So I thought, you know what, let me up the level here and go, go climb Kilimanjaro. And I got five friends of mine who graduated with me to come on this climb of Kilimanjaro. And what, and we were heading off. This was in 2001 and one by one, they all found a reason not to come. And so I ended up flying to Tanzania on my own and you have to recruit a local Tanzanian guide and a porter, get a permit and cut a long story short. I did a six day climb of Kilimanjaro. I felt terribly ill on my summer day with altitude sickness, but eventually, you know, reached the summit early morning. There's a ice cap on the summit of Kilimanjaro, these incredible glaciers, the sun is coming up. And I'm looking out thinking, this is just the most incredible view. What an experience. And this sort of was another pervert in my life because at the same time as that happened, I read this book called Seven Summits by Dick Bass. And Dick Bass was an American who in the early 80s came up with the idea of climbing the highest peak on each continent of the world. And he, and he became the first person to succeed in doing that in 1985 also became the oldest person at that time to climb Everest. And his book, you know, created this um, motivation amongst the climbing community to go climb the seven summits and has been a, you know, an inspiration ever since. So that's sort of started me on that, that, that journey. Uh, and it wasn't just about the seven summits. It was about, you know, learning to climb and learning a skill and, and, and trying to be as good as I could be in that particular sport. So how, how long did it take you to, uh, to complete um, all seven summits? So it took me two and a half years to do the seven. Um, and I was fortunate I made each of the seven summits. Uh, I reached the summit on my first attempt. I was living at that time, I was living in France. And so I got to train up in Chamonix. And Chamonix is sort of the mecca of climbing. And I, Where is that? I, that's 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 in france okay in in the french in the french alps it's a little town in the french alps it's a big ski town but it's sort of headquarters for if you're climbing skiing uh, or whatever mount mountaineering adventure you, you you want to do and from chamonix you can go up mont blanc which is the highest mountain in western europe and so uh, the three years i spent living in france i trained in the french alps and i okay. eventually hired a, a, a Scottish climber who was a professional uh, guide under the French uh, mountaineering system. And I used him as my coach. And so, you know, I could go into the mountains for two weeks and we would, in the hut system in France, you can go from every night, you can move from one mountain to another and you can live in these huts in the mountains. Hmm. And so I would train in France and then I would go and do expeditions on the seven summits. But I was uh, I basically basically took two years off 
uh, after the sort of internet bubble burst and trained like an athlete and climbed as often as I could. Huh. Interesting. Um, what would like your weekly training schedule look like dur- during that time and in, in like the months leading up to a major climb? Like, how would you, like, how did you train for, for Everest as an example? Yeah. So my schedule was a combination of mountain biking, gym work, uh, running and hiking. Um, and so fortunately, you know, where I was living in France, I had a lot of mountains, so I could, you know, go out for a 30 or 40 kilometer hike with a big pack. I could mountain bike, I could gym. And I used to basically train twice a day and leading up to Everest. Uh, so, so just before Everest, I moved to Cape Town. Um, so I'd finished six of the seven summits. I moved to Cape Town in, in uh, 2004. And I was going to, going to climb Everest in 2004 when I had a ski accident and I tore the meniscus in my knee. So I had to have surgery, I had to rehab. So I put Everest off for 2004, but in late 04, I went to Tibet to climb Cho'oyu, which is the sixth highest peak in the world. So I spent six weeks in Tibet and I was really trying to test my body above 8,000 meters. So I summited Cho'oyu, came back, um, signed up for Everest for 2005. And so my routine then was, you know, I would run a half marathon on a Saturday. I'd ride 100 kilometers on a Sunday. I would typically, during Monday to Friday, have a morning training session, an afternoon training session. So I was absolutely committed. Yeah. Um, and I had a, my professional work schedule was reduced. I was doing basically consulting work. I was on a number of boards. So I managed to create a schedule where I could focus really on training like an athlete for Everest. Interesting. What, what climb was the hardest and why out of the seven? Of the seven, you know, I think in terms of a sustained commitment, um, Everest is the most challenging. You know, mm-hmm. I think uh, Mount McKinley in Alaska is a very tough expedition because you're hauling a lot of gear. You're pulling a sled. That's a very physically demanding trip as well. Um, that's, you know, a three week expedition, um, but Everest for me was tough. I mean, we ended up summiting in the month of June, which was very, very unusual. So in 2005, the monsoon was very late, um, over the Bay of Bengal. Typically summits happen from the middle of May. The first summit happened on May the 30th. Um, three quarters of the teams abandoned the mountain. We were all booked out of Kathmandu, sort of 30th of May. And so our expedition sort of blew apart, but a few of us remained behind and we negotiated with our Sherpa to stay later and we eventually summited. So I was, you know, uh, from leaving home to returning home, it was a 78 day trip. And, you know, I was on the mountain for, you know, I was on the mountain for a long time and I was above on our final summit push. You know, we were stuck at camp two for six days you know, we were above 6,000 meters for about 10 days and we eventually summited and made it down. So it was, it was, it was a, it was a challenge for sure. Yeah. Were there any, any moments during that expedition where you thought about potentially having to descend and just couldn't make, couldn't summit during that time? 
Yeah. So what happened, we had, we had a summit attempt that we called off. So when we made our third rotation up the mountain, up to camp two, we had, we had, we had just got to camp two and the weather deteriorated and we got a very bad weather forecast. So we, we actually, the next day went all the way back down. And then the fourth time up, we spent six days in camp two waiting for good weather. And um, for me, the big challenge was I got an abscess and a tooth. I'd had a problem with a tooth before leaving with a root canal. And then this tooth blew up and um, I got an abscess, but I had took a course of antibiotics and, and heavy painkillers. And actually the six days I spent in camp two really helped me. But I mean, a funny moment on hindsight, I called my wife on the sat phone and I said, look, I don't think this is going to work out. You know, I, I'm like, I can pain. The weather's not good. And she said, stop, stop whinging and complaining. Just climb the mountain and come home. And, and I, I didn't expect that response, you know? So, um, cause all my friends or my co-climbers, you know, we had had 17 of us on, on the summer team and we were down to six people. So everyone was bailing either due to health issues or timing, or they were just mentally, fatigued you know it's it's a big mental game so right we stayed in the moment and and we kept going and um but it was very we were very close to calling it a day and even when we made it up to the south coal on june the first we're still very high winds but you know summer day turned out okay it was cold but you know we had clear skies it was super cold but we could navigate so we could keep safe and fortunately there were very few people on the mountain. I think on our summer day, there were probably 10 or 15 climbers maximum. So there were no okay. bottlenecks. You've probably seen some of the pictures of bottlenecks on Everest. We didn't have anything near that, near, you know, comparable to that. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's awesome. And what about um, mountains that you've enjoyed climbing the most? Is there one that you, outside of the seven, the seven summits, just like any mountain in the world that, um, like you would call like your favorite? So, you know, that's a very interesting question that I've been asked a lot. So I've actually been back to Kilimanjaro eight times. Wow. Um, and, and you might ask, ask why. And it's when you grow up in Africa, that mountain is like an iconic symbol of Africa. And I first started going back when a friend of mine had his 50th birthday and he asked me to take him up Kilimanjaro. And then later on, I took my oldest son when he was 13 um, on an expedition with me. And I was leading an expedition for, for YPO, which is Young President's Organization. And I took 25 CEOs up the mountain and my son came with me. And he, did, he, he summited at 13 and 14. And then my youngest son wanted to do it when he was 15. And I did a dad and son's trip. And then... Um, I subsequently took some groups at my own company, Vox Telecom. I took a, a group of, of staff up there and it, it became just this amazing place. There's a certain energy I get from being in Tanzania. You know, there's the Rift Valley, you know, the, the origin of mankind uh, comes from the Rift Valley, you know, the oldest human uh, fossils that have been found there, et cetera. So it's a very unique place in the world place where I've been a lot. Um, but saying that, I've, I've really loved climbing in South America as well. I love the Andes. Um, Aconcagua is a tough climb. I wouldn't say it's the most beautiful mountain in the world, but it's a, I found that to be a, an incredible place to go to. I loved climbing in the New Zealand Alps. 
the French Alps I've spent, you know, I don't know how many days I've spent in the French and Italian Alps. I mean, I could tell you some of the scariest climbs I've done. I mean, the Matterhorn for me to this day is one of the scariest climbs I've ever done. And very sadly, on the day I climbed it, uh, two climbers fell and died. Wow. Um, and um, the mountain was falling apart. There, there was a heat wave and, and the ice had melted. And so, so there was a lot of loose rock. It was super dangerous and they had to evacuate a lot of climbers. We made the summit, but that's a mountain I don't want to go back to anytime soon. But Chase, if you get a chance to climb in, in the European Alps, it's, uh, it's just stunning. They, yeah. they all have something special. Every mountain, to be honest with you, has something special. Yeah. It's on, it's on my, I guess, bucket list um, to definitely climb one, one of these really, I guess, high mountains at some point. So this is good uh, inspiration and, and education. Uh, so I appreciate it. Uh, as I'm sure you know, the, the metaphors between, you know, life and climbing a mountain are endless. So maybe more specifically, have you found that all of these mountaineering expeditions have helped you manage or prepare you for all the like ups and downs and stressors that life brings? I certainly think so, um, you know, and again, it's something I tend to talk, talk about quite a bit when, when I speak to companies and I, you know, I've been on the speaking circuit for about 10 years and, you know, people often ask what are those metaphors? And I guess a lot of them are very obvious, Chase, um, but, a, but a few, despite that, are worth talking about. You know, I, th I think what's interesting about mountaineers is they 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 set big goals you know and there's a couple of mountaineers that i've particularly admired you know i'm not sure if you're familiar with reinhold mesner um who was the first person to climb all of the world's 14 8000 meter peaks and he pursued that dream over a very long period of time uh in fact it took him 16 years to to climb all 14 of those peaks starting in 1970 and finishing 1986. Um, similarly, Dick Bass, who came up with the idea of let's climb the seven summits. And then last year, you know, Nims Perger broke the world record by climbing all 14 8,000 meter peaks in six months. I mean, it's, it's wow. hard to imagine you go from a world record of 16 years to six months. Now, admittedly, yeah. he had the benefit of helicopters moving in between mountains and things are a little bit more advanced. But, you know, the, the common thread here is this focus on, on an extraordinary goal. And I think if you take that into your personal life, you know, for yourself, for your team, and for your business, you know, if, if you don't set the bar high uh, for yourself and your business, no one else is going to do it for you. So, you know, I think that to me has been one of the, the key lessons. The second is, you know, execution counts. You know, pay fanatical attention to detail. And in, in mountaineering, you take this to a different level, you know, you know, a classic example for us was on summer down Everest. Um, there was another team climbing and they had a regulator failure on their oxygen bottle, but they weren't carrying a spare. So that particular climber, you know, was not getting any supplemental oxygen and he had to turn around. Now I wasn't aware of that at the time or anyone on our team, but we all had spare regulators. And, and that's just a simple example of something that was planned months in advance, you know, just like taking care of the food, the tents, the equipment, nutrition, et cetera. So 
preparation, I think, is a, is a is a necessity where whether you're on a mountaineering expedition or whether you're running a business. Mm -hmm. And just like in mountaineering where you say to everyone, take care of yourself first, because if you don't, someone else has to take care of you. It's the same in business. You know, if everyone on the management team is doing their job properly, um, things work a lot better. So, so take care of your responsibilities first so that no one else has to go and deal with any of the problems that might arise if you don't. So, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting lessons. The, the decision-making one we talked about is, is, is also key, you know, where making the summit on a climb is really the sum total of lots of small, maybe some bigger than others decisions along the way but also maintaining a velocity around that decision-making. So if you can take that into the business world and increase your business, business velocity, I think that creates an advantage. And a, a couple of final thoughts on this, you know, I always say the team does count. And so decide who is going to be on your rope. You know, so when you're roped up to someone in climbing, you know, you're mutually dependent on that person for your life. An extreme example, perhaps, but equally in business, you know, the team does count. And if you don't have the right people on the team, you need to be very focused on, on making a change and making a change quickly. And um, the other thing I've learned, Chase, is just motivation and desire trumps reputation. You know, meaning sometimes finding people who are super hungry with incredible desire to do something in business they get more done than someone who in theory has a better resume. I just find motivation is, is a critical element of someone's makeup and what they're willing to do to succeed. So I really look for highly motivated individuals who are ambitious and who want to do something, you know, extraordinary. And then finally, you know, be prepared for setbacks. You know, th this is how life works. Stuff goes wrong you lose customers, um, you screw up, uh, you have to adapt, you have to pivot, you have to make a change. That is just the fact of life. Um, I don't know anyone who hasn't dealt with significant challenges in building a business, you know, or climbing a mountain. You know, it's, it's a process you go up and down and you have good days and you have bad days. But whatever happens, you know, you, you can, you can, replan you can refocus and you can keep pursuing that that final objective you know there's there's really no shortcut um to get yeah. into the summit or building a business you just have to put in the hard work it's awesome i love it and going back to so you took a group of employees um to climb kilimanjaro is that right yeah so what i did actually at vox telecom each year we did a different expedition. So one year we went to Turkey and we climbed Mount Ararat. Another year we did um, Kilimanjaro. A third year we went to France and we climbed Mont Blanc. Um, so another year we went to Ecuador and climbed uh, five volcanoes in Ecuador. So every year I organized a trip and people could sign up and they had to put in the training. And it was really interesting, Chase, because we took some people who on paper had no athletic background but we put them on a training plan and really it was transformational for individuals there's something amazing about making the summit of a mountain like you can't get there 
except by putting one foot in front of the other. Like it's you, you did it. And it doesn't matter whether it took you six hours or eight hours or 10 hours, you know, you made the summit, you put in the effort, you felt the pain, you've been on that mountain, could be six days or eight days or 10 days. And uh, it was really good for people. It was super motivational. And some of those employees have continued this passion to this day and keep climbing. That's awesome. Great. So let's get in, get into these last um, handful of questions here. Aside from when you took the basically two years off to do the seven, seven summits, um, you know, you still do a lot of mountaineering today. How have you managed to balance everything over the years, like mountaineering, endurance, athletics, entrepreneurship, family, and so on? <laughs> With difficulty. I have a very understanding <laughs> wife. You know, my wife has been pretty good. I mean, <clears throat> the other sport I haven't talked to you about is, you know, I've also done a lot of mountain bike stage racing. So my, you know, prior to mountaineering from sort of age 18 to about 30, I was a fanatical marathon runner and ultra marathon runner. Okay. Um, and also a road cyclist. And then I moved into mountain biking. So I've, I also completed some of the world's toughest professional mountain bike races, the Cape Epic in South Africa the Trans Andes, La Leyenda in Colombia. These are sort of seven, eight day stage races where I was racing as an amateur, but they have the world's top pros racing and you, you race with them. You know, they start first and you start behind them. Um, but, but the reason I'm mentioning that is just the, the endurance training was a very natural evolution into the mountaineering world because, you know, mountaineering is legs and lungs and you're on your feet for very long periods of time over many, many days. And so it was a natural sort of way for me to move into that sport. And then I've used those, that sort of muscle memory and that history and that preparation that I've applied into mountaineering. So I've tried to strike a balance, you know, I've taken some time off, uh, I mentioned in the two years and then between a couple of my other jobs, I've taken typically six months to a year off between different things Mm-hmm. And then I would focus on a couple of expeditions and I've tried to do at least one expedition a year if I can. But these days it's normally a one to two week expedition as opposed to anything longer than that. Right. Um, and I just try and maintain as healthy a lifestyle as I can that I always have a minimum base level of fitness. And then when I get closer to an objective, I try and crank that up obviously the weekends become a major focus of training. Mm-hmm. Um, and then trying to keep my wife happy along the way can be a challenge, but you know, we, she's come on quite a few expeditions with me, but she, she's not really happy at altitude. She's a, she's a diver and prefers okay. the, the water. But um, yeah, so I can't say I've got a perfect balance, but I think um, try to do my best. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say we meet again on the street in five years, theoretically what would you want to be telling me that you've accomplished or created since this conversation? It can be personally or professionally. So professionally in five years, I would hope that the venture fund I'm running has um, returned a substantial, substantial multiple of its capital raised back to the limited partners and they are incredibly happy investors and equally that the entrepreneurs we founded who founded companies that we have supported would say that 
you know, I've been incredibly helpful to them on their entrepreneurial journey and, and hopefully their companies have done incredibly well or on their way to, you know, good growth and, and hopefully good outcomes and good exits for them as well. So I'd like people to hopefully have a, a very positive view of the experience of working with me and, and building, building those companies and, and, and I fund and equally that my partners and the people who work for our team have had a great experience. And uh, on the adventurous front, I'm hoping uh, that I could tell you, Chase, that I climbed another 8,000 meter peak, that I did a couple more adventure races on the bike, that I finished the seven volcanic summits, and that I've been to, uh, also completed my quest to travel to 100, company, 100 countries in the world. Um, I'm at 83, so I'm trying to get to 100. Mm-hmm. So, um, and hopefully that I've been a, you know, a, a good husband to my wife and a good father to my kids and, and, and help them do well as well. Awesome. What does your daily routine look like? So um, typically, depends where I am, but if I'm in Canada uh, up early, quite often do a, a morning training session uh, if I can, 8.30 at my desk, have a full day. If I can fit in a, a second evening session, but typically Monday to Friday, that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the weekends, I'll go for longer training rides or a hike if I can. Um, my week is pretty jam-packed, to be honest, with meetings. And I'd say during you know, getting back to the COVID topic, you know, it's been really super busy this this last year. So... I find it better to train early in the morning and then just have the freedom to work the rest of the day without trying to figure out how to fit in a late training session. But when I can't get it done in the morning, um, sometimes I'll do it later in the evening as long as I get something done. I typically try to avoid any rest day from training. So a rest day would be, you know, just uh, some yoga or something, something low profile. But yeah, I mean, my, my work schedule is pretty jam-packed. Yeah. But even on the rest days, still make sure you get some movement in. So or not just sitting on the couch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And when I'm in the office, you know, I have a standing desk. So I try and stand as much as I can during the day. It's been more difficult at home because I don't have a standing desk. But uh, sometimes I'll do meetings. If I'm on a, on a long call for a couple of hours and it's a call where maybe I'm not presenting or I'm just in listen mode, etc., then um, I might do that and just go walking you know, while I'm doing that. Right. Right. Are there any books um, that you've read over the years that have really made an impact for you in your life? Yeah. So there's a couple of books that have made a huge impact that I wouldn't mind talking about. So the first one is a book called Annapurna, which is written by Maurice Herzog. And Maurice Herzog was a French mountain guide who led an expedition to Annapurna 1950, and it became the first 8,000 meter peak that was ever climbed in history. And it became, and it's to this day, the number one bestseller in the mountaineering genre. Um, And it's an epic read as they describe this incredible climb. Maurice and his partner, Louis Lachanel, got frostbite and they describe in detail how they were returning to Kathmandu and they had to systematically cut their toes and fingers off with a pair of pliers because they were getting gangrene. Um, But it's a tale of, again, you know, focusing on a goal, the planning, 
the detail, the execution, the suffering, the setbacks, you know, the recovery from injury. And it's an, it's an incredible story. And, and I think it's, uh, I recommend it to a lot of people in business because I think it's a great, it's a great inspirational tale. So I, I tell all your listeners to, to go buy Annapurna and read that book. Uh, the second one is Seven Summits uh, by Dick Bass, who he wrote, he wrote it with, uh, with Rick Ridgway. And, and as I mentioned earlier in our chat that he was the first person to climb the seven summits. And it's just a great inspirational story about, again, coming up with an idea, conceptualizing it, planning it and making it happen. Uh, the third one is a book you may know, Chase, called Into Thin Air by John Krakauer, mm-hmm. which is the epic story about the 1996 Everest disaster. Um, when eight climbers lost their lives, which was at the time the single biggest one-day loss of life on Everest, um, until in the last number of years we had a, a massive avalanche of base camp, and we had an earthquake, and there was a lot of loss of life as well. But that this was in 1996, and John Krakauer wrote an article for Outside Magazine, and then he wrote this book, uh, which became you know a huge bestseller in mountaineering. But it's a lesson learned not just about things going well, but things going wrong, which is why I find it interesting. And some of the mistakes that were made in 1996 on Everest in terms of turnaround times and people not having radios and, you know, not planning uh, the use of oxygen. And then what happens when you can't navigate and, and how do you survive in this, in this really life or death situation? So those are three good reads. And the, and the last one on my list, and as you see, I've sort of chosen books from the mountaineering world. Yep. A book called Touching My Father's Soul by Jamling Norgay. And he is the son of Tenzing Norgay, who was the first person to summit Everest with Edmund Hillary in 1953. And it's about his return to the mountain that his father climbed. And it's a it's been a very touching story of, 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 of what that mountain meant to him. And it's a story of humility and courage and, and, um, and just human understanding. And I think it's a, a terrific story for people to read. Awesome. And so as the name of the podcast, the driving force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? You know, Chase, you, you, you save the tough question for the end, right? <laughs> um, I think I, I've had a desire to do some, some challenging things that most people won't do. And you may ask, now, why is that? You know, I think back to, I was a very average at sport at school. You know, I was an average tennis player and squash player. I played cricket and I ran marathons and that. Um, but a lot of people can do all those things, right? And eventually I try to come up with something that was a bit more challenging um, when, I, when I got into the mountaineering world, also doing some of the toughest you know, bike rides that are available. Again, I'm not, I'm not gonna win a bike race, but I'm gonna finish. And, and I've tried to have some interesting experiences and I'm a big believer in experiences in life you know your your visual memory lasts a lot longer than any other type of memory and you remember the things you've experienced and you've seen and you felt that affected you emotionally 
And I feel very privileged to have done, you know, over 35 mountaineering expeditions around the world and, and done some very interesting adventures in different countries and traveled to many, many countries around the world. And I think I would say to everyone, you know, you need to, you need to live your dreams, you know? Um, and I think if anything, COVID has taught me that, you know, the ability to go and travel and do interesting things has not been possible uh, during a pandemic, which makes one really appreciate what you've managed to experience in your life. But it also makes you realize that the opportunity to do it again may not be as often as, as you would like. And, um, so I think you have to get out and have adventures. And there's a great quote from the British climber, Chris Bonington from one of his books, which goes like this. If you dream of doing something, stop dreaming, get out and make it happen. And I really believe in that. You know, you can read about other people's adventures, but you can also go and have some adventures of your own. And I think that's what life is all about. Awesome. I love it. I think it's also a great place to end this. Tony, thanks again for coming on the show. This is great. Chase, it's been a, a, a privilege to be invited and congratulations on, on what you've created with the show. Uh, I love your podcast. I think you've done something amazing and you created it from scratch. So congratulations and I wish you all the best in the future and getting through this pandemic. Uh, stay safe and healthy. Thank you. You as well. Where can people go um, to, if they want to find you online and connect? I have a website, uh, which is tonyvanmarken.com. So they can go there. And um, I'm on Instagram and on Twitter, but just my emails on my website, they can email me. No problem. Awesome. And you all can also visit my website, chaserosa.com, and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks, everyone who's listening, and see you next time.